and the kids get to interact. It's amazing. Even a small 1200 population school district, when you do a six hour, four to six hour training with the kids at the end, they'll say, I was really thankful to meet some new kids. Well, you grow up in the same town, you know, these kids, but they're just like railroad tracks. They're not crossing. And that is part of being a human, right? Being able to talk to people, know that you belong. Welcome to the Learning to Change podcast, where we explore the power of modern learners' lens and put the focus on learning. I'm your host, Melissa Emler, and today I have a conversation that delves into the intriguing concept of the wellness contagion with my guest, Katrina Johnson. Katrina is a helper in spreading a wellness contagion, one school district and community at a time. She is a licensed clinical social worker, regional trainer for sources of strength, and dairy farmer. She currently is designing and facilitating what she has coined as the Protective Factor Literacy. These projects interface with the Wisconsin Suicide Prevention Steering Committee, Office of Children's Mental Health, and Coalition for Expanding School-Based Mental Health. There are three loves that guide her persistence in informing best practices in school-based mental health. One, the love for data. Two, her love for learning. And three, her love for play. In today's episode, Katrina and I discuss the wellness contagion. Katrina is responsible for igniting the wellness contagion in Southwest Wisconsin. Katrina explains that the wellness contagion aims to spread awareness about protective factors and shift the focus from illness to wellness. With all the talk about social emotional learning and all of the money being spent on these types of programs, I felt it was necessary to help Katrina spread her message and work. She has designed and scaled a comprehensive school-based mental health program to nearly 25 school systems and communities in Wisconsin. The work is started with the implementation of Sources of Strength, which is a mental health awareness program led by students and supported by adults. It's focused on creating a culture of support and connection. Sources of Strength emphasizes the importance of experiential learning, breaking the stigma around mental health, and fostering a sense of belonging. Katrina also shares her journey on expanding the program to multiple schools, overcoming a variety of barriers, and the significance of having a dedicated point of contact in each school. She also outlines the next steps in building the comprehensive school-based mental health program. Katrina has done a significant amount of work to develop systems that can be duplicated in every school and community. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Katrina Johnson. Welcome to Learning to Change podcast, Katrina. I am so thankful that you are joining me today. How are you? Good morning. I am good. It's summer, so it's it, relaxing. Absolutely. We hope so anyway. Mm-hmm. So I am I invited you to the podcast today because you are doing some work um, in Southwest Wisconsin that I have been paying attention to for at least two or three years now, and it is... Um, 
having an extremely important impact on the schools and even the government entities in our region. So you refer to this work as the wellness contagion. Can you tell me a little bit about what the wellness contagion is and what are you what what's your work with it? Thanks, Missy. And, you know, you have been an integral part in our ability to expand and explain and increase the relationships within the area. I appreciate all of your help over the years. The wellness contagion is basically when you think about illness being contagious. So if I came into a room with symptoms or sneezing or coughing, people may step away a little bit. And if I come into a room with a smile and a gathering kind of energy, People might come in, but we know illness is contagious and we also know wellness is contagious. And that's a 360 pivot in most people's brains and approaches for community mental health, um, medical model. And instead of thinking that we always have to talk about the warning signs, we can talk about what are the things that we do to live in a healthy way. So protective factors. And the reason we call it a contagion is because it's spreading. People are having fun. They're learning about protective factors. They want to learn about how does music play a role in my emotional regulation? What is a trusted adult? So all these key points of protective factors has been spreading throughout the state, throughout the country, and specifically our cluster of southern Wisconsin counties. So when I first started paying attention to the work you were doing and participating in the retreats and the trainings, what really struck me was the conversation about the protective factors and then working upstream. So can you talk a little bit about how the protective factors and working upstream um, work together to support our kids and adults in our region? Well, I think most people, most listeners have been to a swimming pool where a lifeguard was on duty. And instead of stop running, the signs say, please walk, (laughs) please be careful around the corner. And that is the language shift into protective factors. I, I, I say it's protective factor literacy just to try to blend into some educational terms. But on a clinical lens, community lens, educational lens, it really is this learning a new language. So there's the Sources of Strength program is the foundation of our school-based mental health strategy, and that includes eight protective factors. And those eight protective factors aren't um, just simply delivered or ask people to repeat that those are the protective factors, but they think about what is generosity for them, and they can create their own uh, symbol or their own routines to This is generosity and how it helps them belong, connect, and have a healthier mental health lens. I love that you are talking about um, the language or the literacy of protective factors. And I always say that all change is linguistic. And so when we change our language, our behaviors also change. And one of the things that you just said that is one of those, like, words that when I'm working with teachers and schools, I think about a lot, but the delivery, I think you said something about delivering generosity. And I often talk about delivery in terms of delivery of a lesson plan and how is your delivery. And I 
I don't like the word delivery anymore because I actually want people to experience whatever it is they're hoping to learn more about. And so that's exactly what the Sources of Strength retreat and training session did for me. I absolutely experienced the protective factors in action through people's stories and lived experiences. And um, the games, the games are a huge piece of the Sources of Strength Mm -hmm. work. And before we go too far... Let's just talk specifically about sources of strength for a moment, because I don't know that a lot of my listeners are familiar with sources of strength. And so if you can tell us a little bit about sources of strength, and then um, I want to sort of talk a little bit about from an outsider's perspective, what sources of strength has taught me. So Mm -hmm. take me away. What is sources of strength? Well, just starting at the beginning with some history about it, Mark Lomori was in North Dakota, basically like a social worker for the police department of and responding to doing postvention to any sort of crisis in a, in a community. So after a lot of um, responses and, and deaths, some by suicide, some by overdoses, um, he said, I need to pivot. I need to figure out a different approach. And that led to catching the attention of um, University of Rochester because they were looking for a peer-to-peer model that they could research and it had to do with suicide prevention. But, you know, that was in the late 80s and now sources is in almost every state. It is in boys and girls clubs, uh, faith-based agencies, county Uh, youth programs, and mostly school districts. So there's a secondary level, which is a peer-to-peer. And the peer-to-peer is where it's not the FIED teacher coming in and saying, don't do drugs, please do this. It's the language shift of those kids being able to connect in a fun way and have their own messaging campaigns to help their fellow classmates know what it's like to become an agent of change and an agent of changes instead of being quiet after a tragedy we can start talking about this is the thing that helped me this is the trusted adult i went to so for some for many kids that we get in contact to it's their dog or their cat or their grandparent or their sport getting outside that helps them through big times So that's the agent of change. And then the connectors to help is to not become a mini psychologist and charge uh, 50 bucks outside their locker uh, for advice. But connectors to help are the eyes and the ears to look at us from a strengths-based deficit of, boy, that person only has one thing that they're leaning into. And I think we could get two or three more positive friends, mental health So when a Sources of Strength program starts at a school, across the board, we see an uptick in kids going to a school counselor, principal, whatever that referral process tends to be, with less crisis-like needs. So they're coming in more in a proactive manner of, I'm noticing this, or I think we can include this kid on this. And while there's an uptick, it's it's a beautiful uptick. Because there's time to support that child before they get to a crisis level. 
And that's what I was going to say. Um, so when I went through the sources of strength training, what struck me most um, and has had the biggest impact on the way I view suicide prevention work uh, in schools, as well as like the <laughs> increasing awareness of socio-emotional learning or SEL, the thing that makes sources so different and good is that it is supported by adults, but led by students. And they are the ones who are, as you said, have their eyes and ears to the ground and they're paying attention to what's happening with their peers. So when you have students being the eyes and ears and can put what they're hearing into positive messaging through campaigns, which is really a lot like marketing, really, mm -hmm. it gives it seems more real and it definitely breaks the stigma mm -hmm. and people feel connected and they feel like they belong to, to the school and to the community of people. And so that is very, very different than a lot of SEL programs where I've seen um, the teacher stand in the front of the room and sort of go through the vocabulary and maybe they have a new framework, you know, give me your eyes, give me your ears, give me your heart or whatever I've seen in a couple of other SEL programs. Um, but this, the, the most important pieces of sources is that it's led by students and that feels very different. You know, sources is a culture shifting tool. And just to unpack that, what it looks like, the movie clip version is when you go into Maybe you, you start at a, at a college and you think, this isn't really my place. I don't feel like I belong here. Or into a new job setting or a new family. You're like, this isn't giving me a good vibe. Same thing with those little minds and bodies and the staff that go into a school building, sit in a classroom. We are humans and not robots. So our human body includes getting the vibes, feeling welcomed, feeling connected, and this culture shifting piece includes the adults. And we saw a lot more of a pivot with grants during the pandemic to be able to be aligned for adult mental health. And that was a good silver lining for helping people understand that oh, we're all in this together. It's not a adult driven, please list the vocabulary, what are the six core emotions, but it's a kinesthetic, super fun way to bring a culture together. And the research shows that sources has an impact at a universal level where most prevention programs show an impact at, of people that aren't at risk. So sources has an impact both of students who may or may, uh, may already have some symptoms close to depression, anxiety, or suicidality. And sources has a universal approach. Uh, the fun part is we like to have 90% fun and because we know the brain starts to learn and take in some uh, better experiential basis and the kids get to interact. It's amazing. Even a small 1200 population school district, when you do a six hour, four to six hour training with the kids at the end, they'll say, I was really thankful to meet some new kids. Well, you grow up in the same town, you know, these kids, but they're just like railroad tracks. They're not crossing. And that is part of being a human, right? Being able to talk to people, know that you belong. And then having the kids be able to lead it is that experiential 
culture shifting piece that's not an SEO and uh, sources isn't a finished product. It's always changing with the political landscape, all the other pieces of issues going on in certain parts of the world. But it brings about the language of please tell us what are the strengths that are helping you? Mm-hmm. And can we help you with more strengths? Yeah. It's not all, that. it's not all positive. It's not toxic. It's not toxic positivity. It's not that at all, because I have witnessed some real conversations emerge through um, the connecting games, right? So yes, it's certainly fun, but because people are feeling um, at ease and they're having fun and they're feeling um, like they're in a safe place, those really serious pieces emerge and there are people there to encourage and support throughout the whole day. And so as people increase their comfort levels with what they're experiencing, the depth and the complexity of all of their feelings emerge. And it's a very safe place for that to happen. And it is a bonding piece um, that really becomes enduring. The reason I am uh, crazy and addicted about sources of strength, and, <laughs> and you can say those things, um, <laughs> is that because when you see those kids' brains go, oh, like, that works for me. I can, I get that. And then they boom, they just have this amazing energy. Like this is what we have been looking for. Or we're really excited to have fun with this. When you see that, it's like, yeah, yeah. That, that is, that's going to be something that they're just going to own and take interest in and they get it. So if they get it, yay. Yes, absolutely. So the most beautiful thing about your journey with sources is you have managed to go from supporting, what did you start with? Two schools initially or three? One, Perdusine. Yes. So you started with one school and now five years later, four or five years later, how many schools are you working with to spread the sources work? So 15 is a, is a strong partnership and then guidance for 20. Yes. So that is incredible. And anyone who knows how much work it is to scale an implementation of any sort in a school or in a workplace understands that going from one school district with their own culture, norms, policies, procedures – And being able to spread that work and scale that work to being able to significantly impact 15 and influence up to 20, people know that that is a significant contribution to the work. And so I'm super curious. That has not been able to be done without some trials and trepidations. And I'm curious to know what the biggest barriers to the implementation of sources of strength um, in all of these schools have been, both maybe individually, like what is some of the specific pushback you've seen in individual schools, but also like collectively, what's been the biggest barrier collectively? I think collectively is having that one point of contact at a school that says, I'm curious, tell me more. I'd love to learn so that we're making an educated decision about the monies, programming, staff that we have allocated towards school culture, social and emotional learning. 
And uh, having that one point of contact enables a school to increase access to this community model of mental health, protective factors. And it, it's for five areas. So it's evidence-based for suicide prevention and it's uh, treatment informed, meaning it has a ripple effect for, and as a therapist, I would say, okay, well, the studies are still being out there, but we know the compounding factors, substance use, mental health, um, self-harm can lead to those um, suicide attempts. So when I look at the whole person, those treatment informed pieces, substance use, mental health, dating violence, and bullying all play a role in that whole child approach. So having the one point of contact gets it going. And if they're open-minded to creating partnerships or applying for grants, um, it can be delivered at almost no cost to Mm -hmm. a school. At first, I think the pushback is probably, oh, we don't have enough money or how much we need to get some grants to make this happen. When in reality, once the schools see the impact that it's having on their students, they find the money, whether the grants sort of come and stay or come and go. Once they are committed and are seeing the impact, they continue it on. And the other thing that I think I've seen is It goes back to that one person, that one point of contact. It can feel overwhelming to go through an implementation plan uh, and trying to get the entire school on board. But if you can, if that one key person gets the support they need from you or your team, they feel empowered to sort of get things going. They make it happen. They're usually in a position, uh, usually a counselor or a very influential teacher leader. They're usually in a position that they can get things done, but they just need that support to know what to do. <laughs> and that's the part that you are super helpful with, right? So you can you give them that Uh, okay, first we're going to do this, then we do this. And you provide that training and support. You get the national trainers from the sources of strength to come in and you really build their capacity right from the get-go, which is extremely helpful. Also, you work specifically with their fiscal departments and you talk about braided funding with them. And I would love for you to share your concept of braided funding with our listeners because it's a great way to look at funding this work. So talk to me a little bit about braided funding. You know, as a mom, as a therapist, as an advocate, there is no boundary there, or there's no obstacle that cannot be overcome when we're talking about the health and well-being in our schools. No obstacle whatsoever. But the financial piece is a whole other part-time job project for me mm-hmm. because there is a a business manager who's probably also handling many other things and they might not have the capacity or time or it's new to them to be dealing with these grants. In so much of the work, you you support the schools with getting the grants, but then helping them see how this particular federal funding or state funding can also serve mental health. So you braid the grant with the federal funding, with the state funding, with their local funding, and you essentially braid all of those pieces together. And that is how you get rid of any fiscal obstacle in the way. And it's fascinating to me um, to watch that happen. And in Wisconsin, schools are given such an expectation and responsibility to 
impact the health and well-being of the kid, the family, the community. And listen, and, you know, we know in the last four years, it's hard to even find a math teacher. It's hard to hire a superintendent. So the infrastructure of a school's operation, oh, <laughs> it's really difficult to say, now please show your data-driven strategy and your interventions for mental health. Mm-hmm. So I do challenge and ask hard questions to county health and human services. Where does your prevention money go? What is it being used for? Because really that we've gone to needing to collect and look at all of our assets to target the most impactful prevention. And that is a language shift. Yes. Fascinating. So now that you have sources of strength, sort of taking our region by storm and supporting so many uh, kids and adults across our region and in all of our counties. What's next? What are you working on um, in terms of the next system that you're building to support student mental health? What, what we learn is a lot of the kids are hungry. A lot of the kids also don't know what is going on with them is perhaps a sign or symptom of anxiety or depression the lack of knowledge, and then the lack of a trusted adult. So those three things, hungry, lack of knowing, so that's the psychoeducation piece, and lack having a trusted adult that they can connect with and having that help-seeking, help-receiving. Now, even the kids that have the most, uh, what you would see in a commercial as the most healthy adult in their life and healthy, fun relationship, they also say that this this isn't a... a relationship that has the language of being able to ask for help. And it really goes down to they don't know what to ask for help for. Remember, we have young brains and the brain doesn't fully develop until we're like 24. So it's being able to have that language in place. And I call it sourceified mental health screening. And the reason is it's called sourceified is because when we approach it with We know everyone here has strengths. We know everyone here has the agency and capacity to live their lives as the fullest. And when we look at your strengths of the eight protective factors and sleep and mood, when we look at you from a strengths-based perspective, we'll be able to provide some coaching or interventions to get you to become, have you have the resources to be the healthiest person that you can be. So mental health screening is a thing. Many schools tend to have a thought that mental health screening is the same as behavioral health screening, and it's a different process. It's different tools, and it includes case management. Now, in the past, people would say this is pre-pandemic, and even now it's still part of a conversation. The guidance for doing mental health screening would say, if you don't have local providers... And if you don't have the ability to connect a kid to a therapist, don't do mental health screening. However, you know, August of 2020, it was, I was like feeling as though I was having a heart attack and a stroke of, of all the influx of need for parents and kids. So there aren't enough therapists. Mm-hmm. We still need to do mental health screening because you can do it, not just the end result of thinking, do we need to refer this kid to a therapist? But how are you sleeping? Oh, thank you for asking me that. I don't know how I can change this horrible sleeping pattern. How are you eating? Do you have a trusted adult? So it's, I call it psychoeducation. That's the real term of if this gets to this level, 
that's really a time to ask for help. And then we, after we do the mental health screening, um, call the parent, make sure that the school or, or um, family member is also on board with looking out for things and letting the kid know there's, there's help out there. What's fascinating to me is that the mental health screening surfaces a whole bunch of things that may or may not be solely solved by mental health counseling, like being hungry or getting enough sleep. Maybe a counselor isn't actually the right solution for that. But if that is flagged in a mental health screening, there are lots of people who can guide a student to making better decisions about a nightly routine or a specific bedtime or a whole how to sleep better and and potentially a referral to a medical doctor for support with that would be appropriate also. So yeah. are you seeing that like things yeah. like when so many do- more people can help than a counselor potentially. Exactly. And and the remember we're not robots we're human beings and so when you think of chemicals or pains, sleep issues I would say when we do our screening, 80% get also referred to primary care. Please visit your primary care provider. We know, and one of the lead child psychiatrists at, at uh, one of the uh, inpatient facilities in La Crosse would say, cross the board, every teenager adult that comes in with uh, suicidal thoughts, pretty involved depression, has a vitamin D level that's super duper low, or there might be a thyroid issue. And... After, you know, seeing a, a kid or an adult, um, and it was a common practice at the VA when I worked in polytrauma at the VA, vitamin D was the first step. And when I work with a kid or adult having suicide, pretty strong suicidal ideations, planning, they could be on a higher dose provided by their primary care provider of vitamin D for six to eight weeks. And I see a tremendous, like 80% turnaround of their symptoms. So the holistic model, right? The interdisciplinary approach. What can't happen anymore is for a school to say, well, we can't refer people because there is a six-month waiting list or there aren't enough therapists. And what those kids hear is there isn't help. There's people that need the help more than me. Um, So we have to really say there's help everywhere and within oneself if given the right guidance, tools, and that whole culture being part of that. So the staff, a lot of the staff after we would do sources of strength trainings would go, we really needed that. Oh, that was so fun. Can we do that again? Yes. Well, and I love what you just said that we can no longer say, well, they're just, there's too long of a wait list. There aren't enough therapists. I love that sort of in your face remark that you made that says, um, because what we're communicating is that there's not help. And we do not want to communicate to kids and adults who feel really desperate for something, for some level of support, that there's no one that can help them. Because in reality, we can all help them by just being aware and recognizing the strengths which come through and the protective factors. Um, Speaking of the protective factors, I will definitely link up um, in the show notes, the protective factors diagram, um, the circle with all of those protective factors, because that is really helpful. And again, people don't really think about it um, or know sort of what those protective factors are. And again, 
for school-based pe- people, the protective factors is really a clinical understanding of – it's a clinical perspective. Um, however, it really – once you identify them and understand them and recognize them, then they're really – they should be school-based. It should be common understanding because it is the way that we can all support each other and help. And I'm so glad that you said – it's not acceptable to say we can't refer you. There's a six to eight month waiting list for therapists or there's not enough therapists um, and to lament about that problem because it just communicates the wrong thing to the people who need help the most. Because there are openings in primary care. There's openings. And as an advocate, if I call someone and say, you need to get this person in, there are therapists that will help make sure that person gets seen. But certainly it requires that medical appointment alongside the therapy appointment. Right. So what I heard you say earlier when we were talking about sources is that there is an uptick in reports of students needing help or support once sources is sort of implemented. But the point at which help is sought is less crisis driven. And so through the mental health screening, hopefully you can screen some things that can be dealt with prior to crisis. And that will sort of help the therapist make sure that they are there for those people who are in crisis and have the time to rearrange and have other trusted adults that can support some of the other pieces before there is a crisis. So I think all of the work that you're doing, Katrina, um, with sources and implementing the screeners is really important. And we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but it is the most comprehensive school-based mental health program that I have seen. And it's mostly because I've never seen a comprehensive school-based mental health system um, be implemented in the way that you are supporting our districts in our region with that implementation. So you have that universal piece of getting everybody to understand and know and learn about sources of strength where you focus on those strengths. And then you move into the screeners so that you can really hone in on what our students are needing and find the help that is most connected to the level of help that they need. And then finally, that third tier of support is is getting them that support from that clinical counselor or a medical doctor or a combination of both. And it's the comprehensive school-based model that allows that to happen in a very systemic, universal way. And I think um, you've sort of unlocked the potential that I've not seen in other places to really support learners. It, it is a good feeling, and it's also a fierce, a fierce passion to to see. When I sit in counseling with se- counseling sessions with kids or families, I think if only the community that you went to school in would have been able to help you learn this language. I think your resiliency, your skill set at this later age would be so much stronger. And, you know, we teach kids math um, and we might do mental health screening at a ninth grade level. And a lot of that includes, okay, you're going to use math for the rest of your life. Okay, you do have some psychoeducation parts because you're human to look at your partners, look at your jobs, look at your lifestyle 
And if you go through your first divorce, you know that you can go to your doctor, you can go to your counselor. So many people tend to have this Polaroid snapshot of, well, if we do this now, it's gone. And this is a huge lifespan approach, simply teaching about help seeking and help receiving. Yes. And the reason it's important in a school district is because of the amount of time the trust that's built there. And we are learning that teachers have a need to learn more about help, uh, help receiving, help seeking, so that they're using those languages. And there's parts of my training, the training that I'll point out, and this is when the kids pay attention times 10 of, I'll say to the staff, okay, when you look at these seven trusted adult responsibilities, can you say one or two that you're strong in and one you want to get stronger in. And that's when the kids' brains and eyes open up to, yeah, thankfully now we're in this together. And that's mm-hmm. right. And I'll say, that, I'm glad you said number five is the one you want to work on. Uh, kids, could you give me a thumbs up if you feel that that's accurate and if you could help hold them accountable and in a fun way. And they're like, Yeah. It's fascinating. I think that that is one of the hidden gems of the work that you're doing is all of the support that the adults in the schools are receiving simultaneously to the kids. And they also need it as we realize that, um, you know, burnout in education is very high right now. We're having a difficult time with the recruitment and the retention. And um, this program, this work, I wouldn't even call it a program, this work that is constant and always in progress, um, is having an impact on the teachers as well. And they're learning as much as the kids. So for that, thank you. Thank you so much for all of the work that you are doing with all of the learners in our region. And it is my hope that someone listening to this episode of how you've implemented uh, sources of strength and subsequently uh, mental health screening across a region of schools, it is my hope that someone finds it in their heart to reach out to either you or me uh, for some information so that we can connect them to the resources that have had a significant impact in our region. So thank you for all of the learning that you have done and all of the learning that you have shared with us. And it is leading to significant changes. So thank you. Thanks, Katrina. You're welcome. And thank you for all of your persistence and smarty brain activities too, to help this whole project. (laughs) All right. Well, you have a great day. And for those of you listening, as always, have a great day. Don't get in trouble. Thank you for joining me today on the Learning to Change podcast. I hope you found our discussion insightful and inspiring. As we continue to explore the power of learning and its impact on change, remember that it's not about pushing yourself or others to change, but about embracing the process of learning. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. If you're ready to take your learning journey to the next level, or bring about a culture of learning in your organization, join us in our free Modern Learners community. We are here to help you navigate the challenges and celebrate the successes that come with embracing learning and change. Simply go to modernlearners.community and join us today. 
you'll find all the resources from today's show in there. Until next time, stay curious and remember, I'm not asking you to change, I'm asking you to learn. Learning to Change is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blaser. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. And Sean McMullen is our executive producer. Learning to Change is recorded on the stolen land of the Sauk and Fox tribes, the Miami Nation, the Osati, Shakawi, Sioux, Ho-Chunk, and Kickapoo peoples. <laughs> <laughs>